Well, good morning and welcome to Access Church. Whether you're investigating Christ for the very first time or you're like one of our leaders here at Access and you've been following Jesus for 263 years like Graham Carnell, one of the hardest things to explain and reconcile is when God says no. No. We call out to God, we ask him to bring a breakthrough in our situation and it appears as though he's disinterested in doing so. We say as followers of Jesus that our God answers prayer. Our God is there for us. Our God is an engaged heavenly father. Yet if we're really and truly honest, we'd have to say that feels true most of the time. Most of the time. Like maybe 90%, but there's this 10% factor over here where we just can't quite explain the activity of God, or perhaps more correctly, the non-activity of God. What's he doing? Why hasn't he shown up yet? It's hard to deal with God's nose. But before we throw a level five spaz attack, which I have been known to do on occasions, it's good for us to ask this question. Isn't no just as much an answer as yes? It's still an answer from God, right? It might not be the affirmative answer that we are looking for, but surely isn't no just as much an answer as yes? Jesus himself, when he was living his life on this earth, got a no from his father. On his way to the cross, he said, take this suffering away from me. I don't want to have to deal with it. Yet the reply came back, no, you're going to have to walk through this. It's difficult because we feel stuck when we're in this situation. It's a depressing space. It's a fearful space. When we cry out to heaven, as our last hope. And it seems like God's not interested in helping out. It's that parent whose child is suffering severe mental illness and they pray and they take him to specialists and they don't know where else to turn. And it seems like heaven's not acting in the situation despite all of their attempts. It's frightening. Or maybe the shoe's on the other side of the foot for some of you today and you've got an abusive parent who's, a, who's got addictions that are unhealthy and you pray and you, God, please change my dad. I mean, he's ruining our family. And the situation just seems to continue on. Unanswered prayer conjures up all sorts of emotions, including fear. Today I want to take you to 2 Corinthians 12, I invite you to open your scriptures there now. And we're going to see a guy, a good guy, an apostle, a Christian leader, who apparently couldn't get heaven to come and intervene in his situation. We'll be reading from 2 Corinthians 12, but real quick, I need to build a ramp for you there this morning because we're picking the conversation up midway. It's Paul after a ministry in the city of Corinth, and what's going on is after he left the city, opportunists came in and tried to disqualify his ministry and say that he wasn't really God's servant. And here's why. He didn't provide enough wow moments. He wasn't powerful enough. He wasn't spectacular enough. 
And what we read then in this chapter is Paul feeling the need to justify his leadership style. Why did he appear to be weak? He's frustrated that he even has to do this to validate himself in this way, but he needs to show these so-called super apostles that he's been there and done that. And he's not made a, a habit of broadcasting his achievements and his apparent weakness is no accident. It was purposeful because he wanted their faith to be built around Christ and not him. So let's read together 2 Corinthians 12. It says this, This boasting will do no good, but I must go on. I will reluctantly tell about visions and revelations from the Lord. I was body or out of my body. I don't know. Only God knows. Yes, only God knows whether I was in my body or outside my body, but I do know this. I was caught up to paradise and heard things so astounding that they cannot be expressed in words, things no human is allowed to tell. That experience is worth boasting about, but I'm not going to do it. I'll boast only about my weaknesses. Verse 6. If I wanted to boast, I would be no fool in doing so, because I would be telling the truth. But I won't do it, because I don't want anyone to give me credit beyond what they can see in my life or hear in my message even though I've received such wonderful revelations from God, so to keep me from becoming proud, notice that, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times, I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults and hardships and persecutions and troubles that I have suffered for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God grant us a serenity to accept the things we cannot change, the courage to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. What I first want you to notice in our reading this morning in verse 8 was the multiple pleas from Paul for change in his life. He had a something He had an issue. He had a problem that he needed God to sort out. We don't know exactly what that problem is. It's just described as a thorn in verse 7. There's endless debate you need to know about what this particular issue was. There's tons of speculations. And because I'm Jono and I'm your friend, I too have a theory for you this morning. In Acts 23, Paul is brought into a courtroom and uh, scholars would say in a first century court, it would be super duper easy to spot where the high priest was. But we read about Paul making comments to somebody who he didn't know who was the high priest. And the nearby attendants are shocked when he makes these comments and they say, how dare you insult God's high priest in the way you just did. And Paul's response is, and don't miss this, I didn't realise I was talking to the high priest. Now, you'd have to be almost blind to not realise you were just talking to the high priest. Perhaps Paul 
was. Elsewhere in our Bibles, we read about the large handwriting that Paul needed to use as he wrote his letters. He mentions to Galatians, see, this is really me, Paul, because you can tell from my large handwriting. Why would he need to use such large handwriting? Well, perhaps for his own benefit, so he could see what he'd written on the previous page. He used oversight writing to spot it himself. I'm not offended if you have a different theory, uh, but what I find interesting here is that we have not been provided the details. Paul didn't say it's my eyes or my leg or my arm or something altogether different. Mental health issue. He didn't say, you know, I have these terrible nightmares or I struggle with anxiety or I have bipolar. I think God might have purposefully withheld the detail and here's why. Don't miss the genius that the Spirit of God has placed in these writings for us today. See, if Paul's testimony was, in the year 2020, I got diagnosed with clinical depression. There'd be like a third of our audience who would prick up and go, whoa, whoa that's me, he's speaking to me. I can relate to this. And the other two thirds of us or so would be going, I'll just have a little snooze while he finishes this story because it's nothing to do with me. Or even a past tense story like, you know, I have surgery coming up and, and for you it's like, well, yeah, in 2010 I went through that scenario, but for me now that's done and dusted. But see what the Bible does for us? It makes this issue alive today. And here's the thing. We all have a thing. You have a thing, I have a thing that we wish were done and dusted yesterday, but it sits there in our lives, nagging, awkward, hard to deal with. We wish it was gone, but it still sits there. Although we can't be certain of the details of Paul's diagnosis, what we can be sure of is he definitely wants this gone. He hates it. As far as he's concerned, it's terrible. You check out verse 9. His multiple pleas for change are met by multiple denials from heaven. His multiple pleas for change are met by multiple denials from heaven. Not once, not twice, but three times, Paul calls out for the God of the universe to come and intervene in his situation, but in this case, there's no such thing as third time lucky. Not once, not twice, but three times, he gets an unwanted response from God. He never got the rescue he was after. You can probably relate to this with the frustration of the issue in your life right now. And over time, this frustration can become a breeding ground to fear. Let me show you how this rolls out. Heaven doesn't listen to me. I think I'm on my own. I mean, I don't have a helper. I know what the Bible says, that God's supposed to be my helper, but on this particular issue, he's not interested. So I need to find a way forward all by myself somehow. Because apparently my thing hasn't made it up to heaven's response centre and got their attention. So we don't want to wind up this morning with where Paul winds up. So what can we learn from him to make sure this isn't our experience, yeah? Let's test a few theories. Was this all a storm in a teacup? 
Was this not even a serious issue that Paul is seeking intervention on? And that's why God didn't seemingly pay attention. You know, Paul's got a runny nose and heaven's like, you know, get over it. We've got much more important issues going on than that. I run the universe, God says. I ain't got time for that. Come to me when you've got something that's got a level of seriousness about it. You know, do you have to wait till your issue is at least semi-serious to, uh, to get God to show up? You know, Paul's been trimming his fingernails and he's gone a bit short on one. And he's got a little bleed and he's like, God, I need you to help. I need you to help. Is that what's going on here? Has Paul just got a low tolerance for pain? Is, he, is the big issue that Paul's really got is he needs to man up. He needs to have a, a cup of cement and grow a bit of courage. Is that the problem that we're reading about here? I don't think that fits with the body of work we have on Paul at all. We don't even have to go elsewhere in our Bibles. We just have to go back a page, actually, to find out how persistent and resilient this guy is. 2 Corinthians 11, the chapter before, says this. I've been put in prison often and been whipped many times without number and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Now we know why they stopped at 39 because 40 is supposed to kill someone, right? Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I've travelled on many long journeys. I've faced danger from rivers and robbers. I've faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as the Gentiles. I've faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, on the seas. How many of us can tick these boxes so far? I've faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I've worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and have gone without food. I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Is this a guy with a low tolerance for pain? Uh, I don't think so. And I happen to think the language of our reading here in 2 Corinthians 12, 8, where Paul gives testimony to being tormented, means just that. This is a gospel warrior well accustomed to enduring severe trials. And if he's at this point, if it's big enough to upset, upset Paul, I suggest it's a big issue, period. It was absolutely big. So how else can we explain heaven's lack of response then? Was Paul not persistent enough? You know, with this, I turn my thoughts to the story told by Jesus of the persistent widow who just kept coming after God again and again and again. And the judge didn't want to give her the time of the day, but because of her persistence, it says, she got the breakthrough she needed. So is that what's lacking here in 2 Corinthians 12? Determination, you know, Paul, you just needed to wait on God a little longer, be patient, wrestle, make sure you've got heaven provoked and try and try and try again. My issue is Paul did try and try and try again. Three sustained efforts to get heaven involved in his situation. Three requests, and I suggest not within a 30-minute period, you know, it's not like, Lord, it's 9.30 p.m. and uh, I need you to help me on this one. Okie dokie, I'll give you 15 minutes. Come back, 9.45, Lord, uh, are you there yet? Are you, are you going to sort this for me? 
Still not now? Wow, okay. I'll come back. Come back at 10 p.m. And, you know, you even try to kneel on my knees. If I kneel down, if I lift my hands, is there some magic formula, God, to get you interested in helping me in this situation? And still, nothing. We know Paul didn't lack persistence. I would interpret his words here as three different seasons, three extended times of prayer and fasting where he pressed in to heaven and yet heaven didn't reply, not in the way he wanted it to. I think Paul's got miracles in the bank. Let's check out a few of these examples. Acts 19, God gave Paul the power to perform unusual Miracles. When handkerchiefs or aprons that had merely touched his skin were placed on sick people, they were healed of their diseases and evil spirits were expelled. I mean, this is amazing stuff. And this is what Paul's already got in his history. Let's read again. Acts chapter 20. Paul spoke on and on. A young man named Eutychus, sitting on the windowsill, became very drowsy. And finally, he he fell sound asleep and dropped three stories to his death below. Paul went down bent over him and took him in his arms and said, don't worry, he's alive, and raised him from the dead. Anyone in our listening audience today risen someone from the dead lately? This is a guy that knows how to operate in faith. Uh, We read on again in Acts 28, Paul gathered an armful of sticks and was laying them on the fire and a poisonous snake, driven out by the heat, bit him on the hand. And the people of the island saw it hanging from his hand and said to one another, a murderer, no doubt, Though he escaped the sea, justice will not permit him to live. But Paul shook off the snake into the fire and was um, unharmed. Any snake handlers in our midst today? I mean, this is the sort of stuff that was part of Paul's everyday life. He regularly walks in the supernatural. He's familiar with freaky, but not in this case. Not in 2 Corinthians 12. God is unmoved by Paul's request to deliver him from this torment that he felt. If my earlier theory is correct and it was Paul's eyesight that was the problem, this is even more confusing in that when Paul first came to Christ, he was healed from blindness. So not only has he got a track record of miracles, he's got a a proven track record in this particular area to see God bring breakthrough. But not here and not now. It didn't matter how much faith Paul tried to muster up, how much prayer and fasting he offered God, how serious the issue was, God was not going to deliver him from this. So we reach a crossroads in our conversation. I have a question for you. When should I stop praying? When should I stop praying for a breakthrough? And when should I accept the status quo? When should I say, well, this must be an area of life that God has left me? To deal with because that's the space we've worked ourselves into yeah we have this serenity prayer that was referred to our interview a moment ago god grant me the serenity to accept the things i cannot change courage to change the things i can and wisdom to know the difference a wonderful prayer that final line is the kicker the wisdom to know the difference that is problematic When do I stand down and accept that this is my plot in life? And when do I continue to press in and expect God to break through? This is a tough space. 
And here's where it's really, 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 really tough to explain. If God never healed, like never ever, we would learn, I suggest, to deal with that over time. It would be difficult, but we would learn to deal with that. If God never healed, if you got a diagnosis and you just knew it was your struggle to take on your own, don't expect heaven to be involved. We would learn to adjust our lives accordingly. Here's the part that's problematic. God sometimes heals. God sometimes heals. And that's the hardest space of all to deal with. If we use faith speak, we say, well, it's his sovereign choice to decide when he does and when he doesn't. If we use everyday lingo, we say it's just random. Sometimes God heals and brings miracles and sometimes he doesn't. We need to be able to reconcile this because when the heat comes on, you and I aren't looking for nice poems. We're looking for the capacity to endure through the difficulty. So what do we do with this? You've been dealing with an unresolved issue for 10 years and nothing. Do you just accept it? I don't think so. We live in this messy middle where faith endures and yet honestly admitting we don't have guarantees of an outcome. But that's the place of liberty because that's the place of trust. Michael Wells says it like this, God does not give us answers to every situation but rather reveals attitudes for every situation. So here's what we must do. Keep a growth mindset. Refuse to get stuck. Refuse to try and resolve all ministries, because mysteries rather, because what we end up doing is, is taking scripture captive to our particular theological bent when we need to explain everything away. Here's what this looks like. Because it didn't happen for me in this particular case, it doesn't happen for anyone anymore, anywhere. And that might help ratify our disillusionment, but it's not good. It's not a good place to land. We call on heaven to come and rescue us. And when we get silence, it's confusing. But what we must do is reshape ourselves into that God experience, not try and put God in a box to explain our experience. Here's what we do when we wind up there. When we put this theological box on to explain how God operates and we say, well, God doesn't heal anymore. And some of the most staunch theological conservatives arrived in this conservative headspace because they got a no. And their coping mechanism in dealing with unanswered prayer is to say, because it didn't work for anyone, it doesn't work anymore. And they construct this theological box to explain their situation. Here's what putting God in a box does though. For starters, it makes me look real silly. I become a box head, but that's only the beginning. That's only the beginning. I can't see anyone else's life or circumstances or experiences with God because everything must fill into this narrow little filter that I've created, which is extremely small. But it's the only way I can reconcile my pain. But putting God in this box also means I shut down potential growth. I don't learn to go deeper with him and relate to him. I've just explained away my perceived indifference of God. The reason he didn't come through for me is because 
Well, he doesn't work in that way anymore. Sometimes God says no. Sometimes God says slow. Sometimes God says grow. And even if what we feel is profound disillusionment, on the other side of that pain barrier is a whole nother level of growth. God wants to take me, God wants to take you out of a transactional mentality where if I do A, B and C, God will do X, Y and Z because if I hold up my end of the bargain, he will do his end of the bargain. No, no, no. I worship God not because he fits a theological box. I worship God because he is worthy of my worship. Because he's worthy of my worship. And the end goal in me having a relationship with God is not so I can manipulate him to do what I want. No, the end goal is relationship and connection and intimacy. Don't miss 2 Corinthians 12. God never said an outright no to Paul. He said, not that way, not this time. Not that way, not this time. We're going a different route. This time I'm not teaching you, Paul, about my power. That was last time. That was yesterday. Today I have a different lesson for you. This one's about my sustaining presence. Will you trust me with this lesson, Paul? This lesson will be about grace. And you'll learn more in this particular lesson with that problem still present than if I took it away. It's in the presence of your enemies, not their absence, that we are going to sit down and go through this next season. We don't need to put God in a box. We don't even need to put ourselves in a box. We need to move away from boxes altogether. They stifle our growth. There's no freedom here. Instead, Paul invites us to a grander perspective. I must reframe my view of what a blessed life is. I must reframe my view of what a blessed life is. And as the music team come forward and we close out this morning, I want you to answer the question, what does that mean for me to reframe my view of a blessed life? There's a reason Paul got to know. It was to his spiritual advantage. It was more powerful for Paul to be in this weak position, in this predicament, for God's glory. Until now, we've been circling around verses 8 to 10 in our discussion this morning. I've deliberately skipped over verse 7. Until now. Let's bring it into view. Paul says in verse 7, I was given a thorn. Please notice the verb in that sentence. I was, what Paul? Critical word. I was given. I was given. I was given a gift. A gift of what, Paul? A thorn. An issue. A problem. How's that a gift? Well, at first I thought it was a curse, Paul would say. But over time, I've reinterpreted it and I see it now more as a gift. I first welcomed it like I would a punch in the head. It stung. But I learned one of life's greatest lessons by enduring in it 
grace. And the ability to surrender to God's plan for my life, even if I don't understand it. And the thing I used to fear the most, my weakness, appearing vulnerable, having people think less of me. I now show it off as my best side, says Paul. I boast about it. Paul discovered a freedom from which most of us hide, his weakness. And it's in this humility Paul learns we don't come to God saying, I am nothing. We come to God saying, I have nothing. Weakness is a disciple's greatest asset. Today, as you scan across your life and you look at that thing, that thing that you wish was gone, that thing that is so problematic, I invite you to reinterpret that in the presence of God this morning, seeing it as an opportunity to grow in trust, to grow in dependence, to grow in surrender. God, we ask today that you would help us to learn the freedom in surrender. We bring this issue to you, God. For some of us, it's more than one issue. But we lay them at your feet today. And we first ask, God, that by your power, you would bring about breakthrough and change in these situations. And we ask for the wisdom to know the difference. And while we wait, we wait patiently we wait expectantly. We know this, this posture of surrender positions us in the most powerful place ever. In your hands. And so we rest there today in Jesus' name.